0: Well, maybe you've received one of those emails. Uh, You know the ones, uh, with some amazing, supposedly true story to tell. Like the one about the thriving colony of large alligators living deep within the bowels of the New York City sewer system. Have you heard this one? Apparently, the alligators were bought as pets in Florida before being brought to New York City, but were then flushed down the toilet when they became too aggressive. Now, apparently, uh, now the alligators have lived underground for so long that they've mutated into blind albino alligators. And apparently, respected biologists have examined this claim and have called it, and I quote, awesome. <laughs> yes, respected biologists. Have you ever received one of these types of emails? You know, amazing stories, urban legends... Myths relayed from person to person as absolute truth. The strange thing is, if people actually thought about these stories just a little bit harder, then they might realise that the evidence backing them is, well, rather questionable. I mean, what are the names of those respected biologists, for example? And, And what awesome university did they study at? And so the most amazing thing of all is that so many people actually believe these myths without examining them and they just pass them on to others as truth. Well, it's something of an understatement to say that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is an amazing story and yet it is a story that has been passed on from person to person for the last 2,000 years and many, many people have believed it to be true. But can the story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead be trusted? Is it really true or is it just another myth? Well, as any good historian will tell you, uh, the best way to determine if something is true or not is to go back to your primary sources, to go back to the original documents and analyse them and then determine if, in the end, it has the smell of (laughs) truth or the smell of blind albino alligators. For the last 10 months or so here at Chatswood Presbyterian Church, we've been working our way through one such primary document, the Gospel according to Matthew. And today we reach the amazing story of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. So let's have a look at it, and let's think together about whether this story rings true or not. Now, if you don't already have a Bible open at Matthew chapter 27, can I encourage you to grab a primary document now and turn with me to Matthew chapter 27. It's page 706 of the small print, 1549 of the large print Bibles. Now, if you were here last week, then you might remember that in this story, it's now Friday. Jesus has just been executed, crucified, under the direction of the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate a man who caved in to pressure from the Jewish religious leaders who hate Jesus. It's now Friday afternoon and Jesus' body hangs lifeless on a cross. In just a few hours, it will be dark and the Jewish Sabbath will begin. Now, most of the bodies of people crucified by the Romans were simply left on their cross to decay. But for the Jewish people it was particularly important that no dead bodies be left exposed, especially on the Sabbath. And so the Romans had made special provision for them, uh, allowing the bodies of those executed in Judea to be thrown into a common grave. And that is no doubt where Jesus' body would have ended up, except for the fact that an influential man by the name of Joseph Uh, goes to Pilate and asks for special permission to take charge of Jesus' body and Pilate grants his request. Uh, Joseph, we're told, is a disciple of Jesus, a follower. He's a rich man and obviously he's an influential man if he's able to get into the year of Pilate like this. Uh, Originally, Joseph was from the Judean city of Arimathea But apparently he now lives in Jerusalem, uh, evident from the fact that he's just finished building his family tomb there. But then, in an extravagant and courageous act of devotion, Joseph takes down Jesus' body from the cross, wraps it in linen and then puts it in his own empty tomb before rolling a large stone in front of the entrance to the tomb. Now, archaeologists have found examples of this type of tomb. You can see it up on the screen here. You see here the, the large stone that would have been rolled into the uh, entranceway of the tomb. Somebody at the 9am service said it looked a little bit like a macaroon. I'm not, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> it's a big wheel-shaped stone sitting on a track that could be pushed such that it would fall into place and lock into place there at the entrance of the tomb, no doubt designed to keep grave robbers and animals out of the tomb. But significantly, uh, we're also told that two women, uh, both named Mary, were there watching as Jesus' body was laid in the tomb. They are Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Joseph, both followers of Jesus, uh, literally, in this case. And it's significant that it's these particular women who are there because as we heard last week, they were also witnesses to Jesus' death on the cross. He read with me from Matthew chapter 27, verse 57. 27, 57. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. So these two Marys who have witnessed Jesus' death have now witnessed his entombment as well. And that was Friday. Now, it's the next day, Saturday, and some more people pay Pilate a visit. This time, it's the religious leaders, the same religious leaders responsible for Jesus' death. They now come to Pilate because they're worried. See, they remember that when Jesus was alive, that he told his followers he would rise to life three days after being executed. Well, he's been executed and now they're worried that some of his disciples might come and steal Jesus' body from the tomb and then start some myth about Jesus rising from the dead. And they're worried that if a myth like that gets started, that Jesus might attract even more followers and so become an even bigger problem to them in death than he ever was in life. And so they ask Pilate to make sure that that doesn't happen by securing the tomb. Well, Pilate once again complies and gives them permission to take a guard of soldiers, probably soldiers from their own temple guard, uh, to secure the tomb as best they can. And so that's exactly what they do. They post a guard of soldiers outside Jesus' tomb and they even put a a seal on the stone, a, a seal, probably a cord that stretched in front of the stone and secured to the tomb wall on either side. An official seal from the authorities, which effectively said, keep out, trespassers will be prosecuted. Here, read with me from verse 62. 62. The next day, the one after preparation day, that is, on the Saturday, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be, made a secure, uh, to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. So now all they've got to do is guard that tomb for the next two days and then their job will be done. Then Jesus will be seen as the deceiver that they believe him to be. So that's the Saturday. And now, humanly speaking, Jesus' body is going Absolutely nowhere. But I did say humanly speaking, didn't I? Good, because the next day on the Sunday, early in the morning, the same two Marys who saw Jesus die on the cross and saw his body laid in the tomb, now come to the tomb again. But as they approach, some very strange things happen. First of all, there's a violent earthquake as an angel from heaven suddenly appears at the tomb. And if that's not strange enough, the angel then walks over to that massive big stone and seemingly without effort, rolls it back out of the entranceway. You know, uh, a task that would normally have taken several big, beefy men to be able to achieve. This is obviously an angel that works out or something like that. And then the, the angel plops himself down on top of the big stone, sits down on it, making a complete mockery of the seal and the stone. As for the soldiers guarding the tomb, well, they take one look at this intensely radiant, angelic being and they're frozen with absolute fear. And so these men guarding a corpse themselves become like corpses. Obviously, the angel here hardly resembles one of the adorable little tinsel-clad angels that were running around, you know, here last week for our kids' Christmas pageant. Now, this angel is formidable and intimidating, which is why he tells the two Marys not to be afraid. He says that he knows exactly why they're there at the tomb, that they're there because they think Jesus' body is there. But then in what is perhaps the most amazing pronouncement ever made in the entire history of the world, if it's true, and I believe it is, the angel then informs the women he's not here. He's not here. He is risen. Just like he said he would. Come on, he says to them. Come on, have a look. Look with your own eyes. You'll see he is not here. And with that, the angel commands the women to go and tell the disciples that, that Jesus has risen and that he will meet them up north. And so the women now filled with a mix of fear and joy, hurry off to tell Jesus' disciples... But as they're running off, Jesus himself suddenly appears before them, appearing not as a ghost or, or as some illusion, but as a flesh and blood person. And the very first thing that the risen Jesus says to these women is, greetings. <laughs> Put in the common vernacular, hello. Hello. It must have been so surreal for these women, don't you think? Their eyes must have been popping out of their heads as they see Jesus there, standing there in front of them. And they're overcome with emotion. And they bow down and they hold hold tight to Jesus' feet, to Jesus' real nail scarred feet. In an act of love and adoration, in an act of worship. These women have seen Jesus die on the cross, they've seen him laid in the tomb, and now they see him standing before them alive and well. To them, it can mean only one thing Jesus really is the Messiah, the Saviour, the King. The son of God. And so they worship him. And then just like the angel, Jesus reassures the women and instructs them to go, tell his disciples about everything that's happened and to tell them to meet him in Galilee. Read with me from chapter 28, verse 1. Chapter 28, verse 1. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary... suddenly jesus met them greetings he said they came to him gla- clasped his feet and worshiped him then jesus said to them do not be afraid go and tell my brothers to go into galilee to go to galilee there they will see me and so now jesus has risen and on the third day just as he said. And no stone or seal or guard of soldiers, let alone death itself, was able to stop that happening. And with that, the women rush off to tell the disciples everything that's happened. But as for the other witnesses that day, uh, the guards, well, after a while, they come back to their senses and they too leave the tomb site to report everything that's happened. They tell the religious leaders who had hired them everything they'd seen and heard. The earthquake, the angel, the empty tomb. And what do the religious leaders do with this amazing news? Weep as they realise that Jesus really is the Messiah, the Son of God. Repent and submit to him as the risen Lord? No. True to form, they now devise a damage control plan to minimise the impact that these events will surely have when word gets out. And so they create a false account, uh, an urban legend, if you will, about what really happened. They pay off the soldiers and get them to spread the tale that they had fallen asleep whilst guarding Jesus' tomb. And that it was while they were asleep that Jesus' disciples came and, and stole Jesus' body. And so the guards do what their bosses tell them to do and they start this rumour. A rumour that persisted even to the time when Matthew wrote this Gospel uh, several decades later. Read with me the final part of today's story from chapter 28, verse 11. 28, 11. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed and this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. And in fact, we know that this same rumour was still circulating even a 100 years or so after these events. So that is the story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. An amazing story, don't you agree? But of course... The question for us now is, is this a story we can actually believe? You know, ha- having looked now at the source document, is this a story that rings true or not? Well, friends, I believe that as we examine the details of this story, it's very, very, very difficult to conclude anything other than this story being 100% true. And I want us to spend a little bit of time now examining this resurrection story together. And I want to show you why it is that I believe that this is the case. Let's think about it together now. Okay, firstly, one reason I believe that this story is true is because of the way it contains specific references to actual people. Uh, Especially the names of prominent people like Pontius Pilate like Joseph of Arimathea, along with well-known groups of people like the chief priests and the Pharisees. And then there's the naming of actual eyewitnesses to the resurrection. We've got the two Marys. You see, all of them are people who were still living at the time this story was being circulated, people who could easily be approached to give their version of events. So it's not like the story of the blind albino alligators, which refers to nameless biological experts as evidence. Now, in this story, we're given the names of actual people. You don't do that if you're making up a story. Then on top of that, there's the fact that it's women who are named as the primary witnesses in this account. Now, you've got to realise that this is in a society where a a woman's testimony was considered, well, inferior, unreliable. So, of course, again, you don't go making up a story where women, you've got women as the primary witnesses. At least not if you're trying to convince lots and lots of people that you're telling the truth. You do do it if you are telling the truth. And then along the same line of argument, You can see that there's actually a hole in this story that again points to its reliability. Did you notice that there was actually a period of time that the body of Jesus was left unguarded? The Friday night. You know, you don't go and invent a story like this and then leave an obvious hole in it like that. That would be silly. But there is that hole. And again... It points to the reliability of this story, unless, of course, unless, of course, the disciples really did steal the body of Jesus that Friday night and simply claim that he had risen from the dead. But if that's true, then you've got to ask the question: Why? Why would they do that? Why would what would they gain from lying like that? What would they? Tr- what was their motive? What were they trying to achieve? I just can't think of an adequate answer to that question. If you can, come and see me later. But if you still think that the disciples might have stolen Jesus' body, then you also have to account for the fact that then all of them went on to suffer and die for that lie. Think about that. The 11 disciples went through the next, what, 30 or so years being flogged and chased and... And hated, many facing dreadful deaths. Why? All to maintain a lie? Doesn't add up. Surely if that was true, at least one of them, at least one, would have confessed under duress, surely. But not one did. Now, this claim just doesn't add up. The disciples had nothing to gain from lying. They had everything to lose. Now compare that with the religious leaders for a moment. What did they have to gain from lying? Well, if people really believed that Jesus had risen from the dead, then in the minds of those people, that would surely validate Jesus as the Messiah, wouldn't it? And what had these religious leaders just done to Jesus? Had him crucified. So what would that make them in the eyes of the people? Christ killers, of course. Messiah murderers. And when you're a Jewish religious leader, that don't look too good on the CV. So when it comes to their lie, They had nothing to lose and everything to gain. But then, there are some people who have suggested that Jesus didn't really die in the first place, but just kind of fainted on the cross and then revived in the cool of the tomb. What about that theory? Well, it just doesn't make sense either, does it? I mean, Jesus was crucified at the hands of Roman soldiers, These are guys who knew the business of death. They had Jesus scourged, a process that by itself killed many prisoners. They had nailed him to a cross, hands and feet, impaled him with a soldier's spear in his side. He was pronounced dead by the centurion. And so, what are we to believe? That 36 hours later, he's standing robust in front of these women, saying, Hello! They're holding tight to his feet, his wounded feet, without as much of, a, of a, an ooh or an, an ouch. It just doesn't make sense. So other people suggest that maybe the women went to the wrong tomb that morning. That's why they found it empty. Well, that theory overlooks the whole point that it was these same two women that saw the tomb in which Jesus had been laid in the first place. If anyone knew which tomb Jesus was in, it was the two Marys. Now, that theory just doesn't add up either. But you know, friends, what is really undeniable here is that one way or another, Jesus' body really did go missing. If it hadn't, then all the authorities needed to do was to produce his body at any time. And that would have been the end of the whole story. The end. But they didn't. Because they couldn't. And what's more... The very fact that the guards themselves circulated the story that they were sleeping shows that there was the very need to account for Jesus' missing body. So the one thing that nobody can deny here is that Jesus' body really went missing. So perhaps then the guards actually did fall asleep and the disciples really did steal Jesus' body. Well, if that's true, then they certainly must have been very, very heavy sleepers, wouldn't you say? You know, that all these disciples could creep in and, and roll back this massive stone. They're all sleeping away, don't hear a thing. And then there is the, the strange little fact that if the guards were asleep, how could they actually know that it was the disciples who stole Jesus' body as they say? Or that whether something else happened, like that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, a sleeping witness is no witness at all. Not to mention that if the guards, if the guards really did fall asleep, then, then why weren't they punished for that? Well, of course, it's because the religious authorities needed them on side in order to cover up the truth of what really happened. And so in the end, I think the whole story about the guards falling asleep that night holds as much water as a nylon stocking. Now, friends, as we examine the details of the story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, in the end, we have to conclude that the weight of evidence supporting it is overwhelming. Overwhelming! And that doesn't even touch on all the source evidence outside of these few verses, like Jesus appearing to more than 500 people over the 40 days following his resurrection, or uh, the dramatically changed lives of the disciples who who went from cowering and, and fear to boldly proclaiming Jesus as Messiah once they had seen him alive. And so, friends, when we take all of this into account, What becomes abundantly clear is the fact that the greatest myth, the greatest myth ever told about the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that it never happened. But it did happen. It really did happen. And you know, that changes everything. Everything. Because in Jesus' resurrection, we now see that he really is the Messiah the Son of God, who died on that cross to face God's wrath so that sinners like you and me would never have to. And it shows us that God accepted his sacrifice on our behalf. And his resurrection from the dead makes crystal clear the fact that Jesus really is worthy of all our love and devotion Our worship, just like the two Marys realised when they saw him alive outside the tomb. It shows us that he is worthy of all our thanks and praise. The one who is worth following, no matter what the cost. So friend, next time you receive an email about blind albino alligators, don't believe it, will you? Hit the delete button. But whatever you do, don't do that with this story about Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead. Because it is a true story. And the way you respond to it has eternal consequences. Jesus once said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live Even though he dies. So, friends, let's put our trust in Jesus today. Let's believe with confidence. And let's find hope and joy as we daily worship him as our risen Saviour. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you that Jesus really did rise from the dead. That in doing so, he showed us that he really is who he claimed to be. The Messiah, the Saviour, the Son of God. Thank you that we can now confidently put our trust in him. Father, because Jesus really did rise from the dead, help us to now live lives full of hope and joy and help us to daily worship him as we should for we pray in our risen savior's name amen